Hello and welcome to episode 93 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Well, we got a few notes for you, as usual, things we'd like to make you aware of, uh, starting with the State of Closure Survey. Uh, That closes very shortly after this episode will go out, uh, specifically Friday, December 18th in the year 2015. That is the last day that you will be able to respond. So the State of Closure Survey is a survey started by Chaz Emmerich, which we, Cognitech, have since picked up um, uh, when Chaz asked us to. and it's a great idea that he had, and we've been happy to continue it. Uh, it's just a series of questions about how people in the community are using closure. And, uh, you know, we do actually pay pretty close attention to the results. Um, I think a lot of other people do as well. And it's just super interesting. If you haven't already gone over um, and answered, uh, filled out the survey, then please do that. You have until Friday, December 18th, 2015. Um, and then we'll be doing a roundup of the results, and the, the results, of course, will be available for you to look at as well. Um, but uh, do go and take that, uh, take the survey. Uh, you can find it by searching for State of Closure Survey um, and fill that out. There's already been quite a good response, but that doesn't mean that we don't want your input as well. So uh, please go by and do that. I um, also want to mention the, the Closure Remote Conference, which is a really interesting idea put together by our good friend Ryan Neufeld. Um, this is a completely remote conference you will attend online. Um, you can find more information about that at closureremote.com. Um, the conference itself is being held February 11th and 12th. Um, this is in 2016. Um, uh, but the RFP, uh, sorry, the CFP, the Call for Proposals, closes uh, December 31st. So that's in 2015. So that's uh, only if, like two and a half weeks after this, this show goes up. So... Um, you know, that looks like a really interesting idea, and I'm going to be absolutely fascinated to see how it goes. I think, uh, you know, Ryan's pretty well connected, and I think he's got a, uh, going to put together a really interesting event, so you should go and check that out. Finally, I want to mention Closure Bridge Berlin. That's uh, January 22nd and 23rd in 2016 uh, in Berlin, Germany, in case you couldn't guess. Uh, this, of course, is a Closure Bridge event, so the, the, um, I think we've talked a lot about that, but, uh, you know, as you're probably aware, Closure Bridge is a an event aimed at uh, introducing uh, new programmers to programming uh, using Closure, and it's aimed specifically at uh, at introducing women. So, if you want to check that out, you should go over to www.closurebridge.org, uh, and you'll see information about the Closure Bridge Berlin event. Uh, by the way, I should also mention that there are ways to get involved at closurebridge.org as well. Um, and so, uh, you know, even if you are not going to be in Berlin or are not a beginner to closure or are not um, otherwise interested in taking the class, definitely swing by and uh, offer to help. I'm sure they would greatly appreciate that. Well, I think that's everything I have for you in terms of announcements. So we will go on now to episode 93 of the Cognicast. I'm ready to get started if you are. I'm ready. Awesome. Well, welcome everybody. Today is Thursday, December 3rd, the year 2015, and this is the Cognicast. Uh, and today we are welcome. Uh, we are welcoming back. We are pleased to welcome back uh, David Nolan. David Nolan's a colleague of mine. I think you probably know him from his work on uh, ClojureScript. Ohm. Uh, he's a member of the uh, product team here at 
Cogtech, so he works on Datomic. Uh, he does all sorts of interesting things. So uh, welcome to the show, David. Hi, how's it going? Uh, not too bad, actually. Thrilled to have you here and to talk to you again. Um, it's been a while since we had you last on. We were just kind of chatting about that before the show. Um, but we'll come back to that in a minute because we do have the opening question we want to throw at you. I uh, don't know whether you're familiar with it. It's a little different than the last one we asked you. It's, uh, it's a question of art. Uh, which is we we always ask people to share with us some experience of art. And you are a musician, so I think maybe you would maybe draw from that, maybe not. Um, but we always ask people to share with us some experience of art that they've had, whatever that is. It's just something that you that you like that you wanted to uh, to share with our listeners. So, uh, anything come to mind? I mean, so many things come to mind, but um, sure. Uh, I'm a huge fan of um, the Italian filmmaker Pasolini. And uh, it actually had been a few years since I rewatched his film, uh, The Decameron. And it's, uh, you know, The Decameron is a novel uh, from the Middle Ages uh, by Boccaccio, I believe. Uh, and it's about these people who I think three men, seven women or something like this. And they, the Black Plague is taking over Europe and they sort of escape into this villa or something. And they tell a hundred stories. Uh, and it's quite amazing in and of itself, the original text, uh, but the film is beautiful. It's probably one of the most beautiful films ever made. Uh, the Decameron, uh, if you've never seen it, uh, highly recommend it. It's very, very good. Uh, I haven't seen it, so when you say it's beautiful, what, what, what precisely about it? Is it just visually appealing, or? Uh, you know, so Pasolini is sort of, if you're, if you're uh, sort of into cinema, you know, Pasolini sort of is, you know, sort of he's really up, you know, he's pretty up there. You know, he's like, at the level a filmmaker people in the States would probably know is Kubrick, but he's up there with, if not far surpassing Kubrick. Um, but just uh, his, the cinematography, the art direction, the audio, the editing, the performances, I mean, it's the whole thing. Uh, also, he is sort of interesting because he would use uh, trained actors, but he often used untrained uh, actors in his films. And it sort of gives a whole, I don't know, a whole other dimension to the thing. Hmm. It's just, it's just, it's just great. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, I, I could, I could keep on describing it, but I, I, I recommend like taking a minute of your day to read up on uh, the original Decameron and then reading something about uh, Pasolini's Decameron. He's also sort of infamous. He's also a very infamous film filmmaker. I'm not sure if some of the things he's done are even appropriate to, for this podcast, <laughs> but, but I recommend, I recommend looking into it. Oh, intriguing. Uh, and as, I think as you were intimating, uh, <laughs> describing film in a podcast, maybe not the, the best medium to do that. That's really interesting. I'll, I definitely want to check that out. I've always been, I'm not a, I would not say, a, I'm definitely not a connoisseur, but I, I do enjoy a good film and I, I, I feel I have at least some appreciation for, um, for, for uh, some of the, the, I don't know what the term is right, but higher, higher uh, more artistic stuff. So that's very cool. I want to check that out at some point. So thanks for the recommendation. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, we have other things that we generally talk about on the show, and you uh, are a producer of many of our favorite technologies. We mentioned a few in the intro. Uh, you're heavily involved in ClojureScript. You work on Datomic, um, all sorts of cool stuff. But I thought maybe the thing that we would talk about a bit is the same thing you talked about at ClojureCons just recently, uh, namely Ohm.next, um, because I think it's a really fascinating evolution of your thinking and re reflective of thinking in the industry in general of um, this really tough problem that I feel like we've been collectively working on for many, many years, namely how to, and 
and, and maybe this is not an accurate statement of what the problem you're trying to solve, but I, I think the problem that you're tackling with it is how to manage state and client applications. Is that an accurate summary? Yeah, I think that's a very accurate summary, yes. So you gave this really interesting talk, and I think people should go watch it. Uh, I I really enjoyed it because you're an excellent presenter, but it was it was a tour de force. I mean, you really you said right at the beginning there's a lot to cover, um, and so I'm hoping that you can kind of maybe lead me more gently through that because I'm not primarily a person who has been working in that space, um, the, the client space. And, but we did talk about Ohm, uh, the the I guess the previous <laughs> at this point version. Yeah. Uh, the last time you were on, so I wonder if you could maybe lead me through a little bit the evolution and kind of how you got there from where Ohm started out to where you're taking it now. Right. So uh, just just for a quick review, um, you know, when we did Ohm, we were sort of under the assumption that we could maybe simplify management of state if we just put everything into a single atom, all the application state, um, and we used only immutable values. And, you know, this is sort of the, as, as uh, I would often say, it's kind of like treating your UI state as like kind of a database and then components read from that. On there are a lot of benefits and people have realized these benefits. Even if you decide that you don't want to use Zone because you don't like the Surface API, a lot of people have taken this, for example, with Reagent uh, and done the single atom uh, UI state pattern with Reagent. It's actually been taking off in the React world, so the idea has sort of fed back, thanks to both to Ohm, but also that there's growing interest in Elm, and Elm sort of, because it comes from the functional world, of course, they also think that it's a good idea to just put all your state into one place, use immutable values, and so yeah, there's a project called Redux, uh, which is a um, sort of simplification of this thing called Flux for React, where again, you put all of your UI state into a single value. And, and the benefits, again, are, are, you know, once you try it, they're just so obvious. You, you have a single source of truth. You're not distributing state uh, into, you know, all these different components in your application. Uh, so it's much easier to, you know, reason about and debug. But uh, as my talk sort of, uh, you know, starts digging into is that while this makes it easier to reason about uh, the client state, you still have this huge problem in that um, the client state is just not the whole story. Um, any trivial, non-trivial application needs to get its state from somewhere else. Uh, and so in order to really truly build, I, you know, I, I believe, a simple system, um, you need to address the fact that uh, you're, you're coordinating state with some uh, remote application. Uh, and these just putting your app state into an atom really isn't enough. You have to provide some sort of, you know, basically a framework for um, describing how uh, to keep remote and local state in sync. And that's, that's basically why I started down the Omnext path. Uh, to be, you know, totally fair, um, most of the ideas in Omnext aren't my own. Uh, this is a problem that other people have identified. Uh, Netflix has something called uh, Falcor, and, and they already have it in production, uh, and they're trying to solve that problem. And uh, Facebook has something called Relay, which also uh, identifies this problem um, and attempts to solve it. And Omnext is heavily, heavily influenced and inspired by uh, existing work in both of those technologies. 
Yeah, and you mentioned uh, both of them quite frequently during your presentation. Um, but now, obviously, you know, you still had some motivation to not simply use those and say, well, Ohm was a great idea, but we're all going to go and use uh, Falcor or Relay or whatever. Um, so you either thought that there was some combination of the ideas there or some benefit to um, having a closure script API or something that led you to say, we want our own thing that uses many of those ideas. Yeah, so yeah, why not? Why, you know, is why do the not invented here thing? Um, so uh, with Relay, Relay is actually, it's actually a pretty complicated piece of software. Uh, I believe it's something on the order of at least 40,000 lines of JavaScript. And it's done in the sort of, I would say, is the typical um, uh, giving names to everything Java style coding, right? Uh, it's very much typical object-oriented programming. It's not a data-first design. Um, there's also a lot of things in there that, as a dynamic programmer, I don't really care about that much. Um, there are a lot of things they do to make, uh, basically, their type checking with flow work. Um, they want to be able to assign types to the entire query. Um, and lots of things which are sort of, you know, very uh, Facebook-centric tooling uh, considerations. And these sort of things bled into the thing that they released. And so I think um, the scope of Relay was just too vast and fundamentally just too JavaScript-centric. Integrating with it um, would, I think, require a far more hoop jumping than integrating with React does. Uh, because React really does present a very simple uh, functional sort of entry point uh, relay uh, really requires you to buy more into their sort of object-oriented design. So that's why we didn't go with Relay. And again, you know, people, Relay is cool. People are using it. If you're okay with those design patterns, I'm sure you can succeed with Relay. There's nothing wrong with it. The other thing that was wrong with Relay, though, that I did not like is that it does not currently have a good story for uh, local state. How do, you present, how do you represent local state? State really has to come from a remote thing. And that I found problematic, and, and I wanted to fix that. And the other thing that was kind of a showstopper was that, I forget, but I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, but Falcor, uh, I actually gravitated more to Falcor after I decided Relay didn't do things quite the way I wanted. Uh, Falcor is, is more data-oriented. So it was designed by Jafar Hussein, who's a very cool and interesting person uh, that works on Netflix on their, on their sort of um, front-end part as well as their back-end part. And the main problem with Falcor is that it's quite good. It, it solves the local remote state problem. Uh, you're able to, with one abstraction, uh, represent client state and then also represent remote state. And the code doesn't really care where the state comes from. It's sort of a, a unified abstraction that abstracts over data sources. And uh, you get to just pretend you're looking at a JavaScript object, even though that object, that virtual object, could be getting its data from anywhere. Uh, and it's great because. If you, if you decide to buy into Falcor on the client and you buy into Node.js in the back end, uh, it really is it's pretty awesome, right? You can basically share uh, what they call routing logic in both places. Uh, and you can really create sort of a transparent distributed state sort of thing. But again, it means you have to run, you have to run Node.js, <laughs> right? So their solution requires you to run Node.js. And uh, for me, as a closure programmer, uh, obvious non-starter. Uh, so I wanted... I wanted that model, that unified state model, 
but I wanted to be able to run uh, Clojure on the back end and, of course, Clojure Script on the front end. Uh, so there was, um, you know, after spending a lot of time looking at both things, the, there were enough reasons to pursue this. Another thing is that when you start, when you get to start, <laughs> the funny thing is that, you know, this it, is definitely a case of standing on other people's shoulders, right? Because they sort of solved uh, the conceptual problems, I didn't have to wade through a lot of my own sort of design work for the, solving the big problems. And that means that actually I had a lot of energy reserved for solving things that they sort of did not get around to solving. Uh, for example, HTTP caching. Uh, so both Relay and Falcor um, require all the caching logic to be on the JavaScript client. Um, and that really introduces many complications. And it means that you're not leveraging the fact that you already have very sophisticated uh, caching stuff at the HTTP layer, as well as that, that layer coordinating with the client browser. Uh, the client browser has uh, very sophisticated caching in place. And to me, a good design should just uh, leverage existing, well-understood uh, caching techniques and not sort of go down the path of novelty. Uh, so there was some, you know, I had more time to think about that problem. And I think uh, Own Next has a reasonable solution to that. Okay, well, that, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, uh, you know, you had me at I'm a closure programmer, <laughs> but all those reasons make sense. Um, and it's interesting to hear you say, too, that it's fantastic if you're in Node um, because then it's kind of same, same. And of course, that's much the same benefit that we experience as programmers who embrace, you know, closure in the back end and closure script on the front end. So, you know, kind of nice to hear that that experience is mirrored in other technologies as well. One of the things that's kind of been notable to me as I've listened to you talk about Ohm Next is kind of how many times you've said things got smaller, right? Or I took stuff away, or there's less. Um, I feel like that's always a good sign when you're when you're doing something. If you're taking code away or making things either physically or conceptually smaller, that that seems like a, a benefit. Um, I mean, first of all, am I reading you correct? Is is does Ohm Next overall feel small compared to Ohm to you? And if so, what were the significant ways in which it shrank? Uh, so it shrank because, you know, a lot of people, just, just for a really quick review, Ohm had this cursor concept. We needed something like zippers or lenses to sort of partition the state, sort of regain modularity. I mean, the problem with if you have this big atom, um, you don't want anybody just reading from global state arbitrarily. It really, as your, as your UI application gets more sophisticated, that just means you're writing spaghetti code. Everybody's going to get some piece of data. They know too much about the structure of the data. Um, and these are all these are real problems. And so I invented something called cursors, which was just a riff on lenses or, or zippers. And they, they were fine. It was, it was sort of like a, a stopgap. But it turned out, uh, you know, they required me to re-implement over maps and vectors all the protocols just to give the facade of this is a regular map or this is a regular vector. And, you know, those, implementing all those protocols is non-trivial. Uh, if you want re reduce to work or you want reduce KV to work or, you know, so on and so forth. And then, so it required a lot of code, a lot of, a lot of duplication. And, of course, it's not perfect. The abstraction is leaky. And I think people ran into that. Um, so in Ohm Next, um, I saw a way to, to recover modularity and, and, and get all the benefits that you have from cursors, but without needing them. And this is through query. Uh, so we... We just really, we were taking it a, you know, a lot further. Uh, we, we um, components, UI components, describe their data dependencies through a query language. This is very much like Relay. 
Um, and this, the query language allows us to keep the components modular. Uh, but this is, a, this is also a huge simplification. The, the query thing is really simple. Um, it doesn't require me to re-architect how collections work. Um, I could just throw away all that logic. And, and in fact, Omnext, the actual main part of it is, I think, only 100 lines longer or something, the, 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 real, the public API, the, where all the functionality is. And it does way, 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 way more. So while being about the same size as the previous version, you have a sophisticated, powerful query language. You have a, a, a synchronization story. Uh, you can customize storage if you want to drop in DataScript, if you want to use the default thing, if you want to provide some novel thing. So yeah, so, so for me, it was definitely uh, a huge, it was not obvious when I started that it was going to be such a, a massive simplification. That not only would I remove stuff, but that what I would be left with would have more functionality and be more flexible, right? The old version of Ohm, you couldn't, you know, again, you, you couldn't supply custom storage. Uh, you couldn't, uh, there was no good synchronization story, uh, so on and so forth. So it, it was a lot of fun for me to see by, through simplicity, <laughs> you get something that's more powerful and more composable. That's how I felt at the end of it anyways. And I, and I, th and I think it's, it's, it's bearing fruit in the community. I'm seeing people do things with it that I assumed could be done, uh, and they're taking it you know, much further. Yeah, that's cool. But, but help me, and that makes sense. I, I'm just, I, I want to come back to the query thing because, again, this seems quite significant, and I'm not sure I understand it uh, all the way. Is the idea here that you have like this, this big tree that represents your entire client application state, and query is about narrowing it down to a sort of a window that the, that the component cares about and having it um, just focus on that and, and having a way to relate between that component's sort of little chunk of state and its, and its overall position in the, uh, in the overall application state. Is, is that the right way to think about it? So it, it really is more, this is actually pushing harder on the idea of app state as database. So we, there is no, um, so quite different from old Ohm where you actually represented your data as a tree. Ohm next assumes that your data is flat, that mm. it's, it's normalized into something that looks much more like a database. Uh, in fact, we, we, what we do, uh, by, if you use the default mode of Ohm next, if you get a tree from the server, um, it actually uses the queries that are present on the client to normalize that into a flat, uh, effectively flat database. So, so you really, there are no, there are no um, we don't operate on trees. And so what this means is that what a component gets to say now is, I know I need, I know I'm a, I need people entities. I mean, you can really think about it in terms of datomic. I want to render a, a person entity, and I want to pull these keys out of that thing. And then uh, its parent UI component can say, well, I'm going to do what looks like a datomic join. And, I, you know, I'm going to pull all these, all these entities out, but I don't know what of their attributes are going to be needed. And the thing I'm going to render will tell me what those are. So what, what actually happens in Omnext is we, we take a tree, we convert it into a flat database. The components want to render the contents of the database. And what they do is they actually rebuild the tree. So Ohm actually constantly is taking novelty, flattening it out, and then when it goes to render, it uses the queries to rebuild um, what we call the sort of UI data tree. Uh, but the, the thing that's actually is the state of the app, that's, a flat, that's just a flat database. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, there's a lot of optimizations in place so that this whole process is lazy and incremental. 
So if some subtree introduces some novelty and it knows it needs to re-render, we only rerun that component's query. So it's not like we're rebuilding the entire tree. Um, the tree is this, this UI data tree. It's completely virtual uh, and incrementally computed. Yeah, that makes sense. That's actually parallel to something that uh, I've been working on lately where we have hierarchical data. It's actually JSON. It's a, it's a pile of um, interactions with a web service that we're doing and recording. And we're finding that we want to make statements about the JSON. We want to say, oh, this piece of data should have been that. We were checking it to see if it was three and it was actually four. And so we want to record the fact that, you know, this little bit of data way down inside the... Uh, the JSON was the wrong value, and we have taken a couple approaches. One is to maintain the um, the hierarchy and kind of replace that three down in there with an object that indicates that it was not what we were expecting it to be. But I think that we maybe made a mistake there and taking an approach like what you've done and you know listing that tree as a series of facts um, and essentially reifying each node in it to have a kind of an independent existence would let us have a separate set of facts that would be about that original set of facts, and then we could render that however we wanted to. I think that that, we haven't actually proved that out in our particular system, but it, it feels like a much more powerful, general, flexible approach. And of course, you know, we're using Datomic on this particular project, so, you know, we would get a, a query language and a query engine um, essentially for free. So right. I, it's something that really appeals to me as a, as a general notion for how to model data. Yeah, and, and, and really, to continue in this line of thought, um, really what, what is happening is that it's not even just a DB, really, that we create. We really, we actually go there, we go in and like, uh, it's not like we destroy the trees completely. We, we just take each node and we replace the node with links. And so it really is, you know, like, Dat like doing graph stuff with Datomic, right? It's just so natural. Mm -hmm. uh, Datomic really, you know, you can totally use it as a graph database because that's just kind of how it works. But once, you know, it took me a long time to understand how powerful that was. And then I saw Relay and Falcor and said, oh, they're all doing the same thing. They're all wanting to operate on graphs. And the power, I think, of graphs is that when you have a link, you can go change what the link points to. And it doesn't matter how many times that link appears in the tree. Uh, you have a way, you know, you're, you know when you, you, know, you hydrate the tree, so to speak, that every place where you're going to replace that link with the real value it's going to be up to date, right? So that was another problem that the going on down this graph route, this sort of graph DB representation solved for us is that in the old ohm world, if you had the same logical value in like 10 places in your tree, like how do you keep them all in sync, right? That, this was a problem that people encountered over and over and over again. You know, people would use channels or they would use their own sort of publish subscribe to keep these things in sync. And you, you have to lean on event abstractions, right? Suddenly you had to do something programmatic to keep things in sync. But the moment you represent your data as a graph, synchronization is, is, is just, it's just in the data. Mm -hmm. And this is awesome. You don't need a programmatic construct anymore. Synchronization falls out of the structure of the data. Yeah, it's basically just saying what you mean, right? Like these things are the same thing, not these things represent the same thing, and when you change this one, make sure you kick over a little machine that will go over and make sure that one's the same. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so now the other thing that um, I've heard you talk about a lot and that seems um, really powerful and really cool but that I don't have a complete understanding of is 
how this all works with respect to, uh, and you mentioned this earlier, um, synchronizing with data that's external to the application. So, yeah. So yeah, yeah. No, that's it. That's the question. Go ahead. Okay. So um, so there's a so what's neat? Um, another cool thing, and this is just a, a riff off of um, uh, the the coolest thing, right? The thing about the atomic quarry that I think hard, you know, closure people get it. They totally get it. But I think it's really hard for other, for other people to understand this. I mean, you get a little bit of this. People see a little bit of this power with the JavaScript-friendly databases, especially the, the key-value document stores, where it's like, oh, my query is a JSON object. That's awesome, right? Like, my query is data. But of course, Datomic just takes this idea and, you know, sends it into the stratosphere, right? It's not just, you know, I want to get this little thing. You, you can build an entire relational query out of data, and you can manipulate the query out as data. And you know, I think when that light bulb goes off, people just fall in love with Datomic. You really have something where doing higher order, higher order things with your database, it's like it's just a normal thing. It's not it's not this crazy thing that you know, it's not this wow, that's like super sophisticated. It's like very simple. Uh, you can do you know powerful operations uh, because again, the interface is is data oriented. It's not API oriented or syntax. You know, it is there's syntax, but you're not constrained by a sort of a, a string-based syntax. Um, so uh, that, that totally stole that idea. Ohm next is query is just data. And because it's just data, it's very easy to do to manipulate that data. Um, and say, for example, here's a query, and this query in, in Ohm next, part of the query represents something that I know. It's just some local state that I created for my application that I need. It's something that I know the remote service doesn't have, doesn't know, and doesn't care about. There's a data endpoint. It doesn't care about these aspects of the query. Uh, and so it's really easy to take a, an Omnex query, since it's just data, uh, and to basically filter out the things that are local, and then say, give me a new query with the exact same structure, the exact same structure, and it's just Eden data, but that has elided all the parts from that query that are specific to the client. And then what, what happens is that because it's just data and it's Eden, we just use transit to send it wherever you want, and you're, you're in complete control. If you want to send this you know, to a, you know, a Python backend that, that reads transit or Ruby or Clojure or whatever, it just works. We're, we're just completely decoupled from the backend concern. But what's beautiful is that whatever server backend you write, you basically uh, parse this uh, query, and the query is, is just simple data. I mean, every, every programming language has some analog for representing, you know, a list or an array type or in a dictionary type and some, you know, scalar values and maybe use keywords or, or some string thing that fakes as keywords. But, you know, this is trivially parsable in, in any programming language. It's a simple structure. You can write a recursive thing in any mainstream programming language to traverse it. And you can write, you know, code to either, I want to convert this into a SQL query or I want to convert this into a thing that talks to Mongo, or even better, uh, because it, it, it's a recursive query, if you're using Datomic, you have a completely valid, uh, you can, if, you're, you know, if, you, if you plan for it, a completely valid Datomic pull fragment, and you're done. You don't even have to write. Uh, you, you, just, you end up doing less work. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. It, we're just passing on this. Um, uh, the query is something you can pass on to a backend, and it's pretty simple to interpret there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's basically a statement again, statement about the data you need, and then you translate that into, you know, whatever source that is. That's right. It, it, so that, yeah, and that makes a ton of sense to me. Um, 
I guess the other part, so that's query, but, but what about update or adding new data? How do, does there, is there an accommodation for that? So, so it's, it's, so there's a funny thing, uh, about a lot of, you know, most UI applications is that, uh, most, most, when you present things to users, it's like you look at your desktop, you've got like 50 tabs open and 20 applications. <laughs> maybe you, maybe you have the mouse on one button, you're clicking one thing, right? So most user interfaces, with the, you know, with the, with the exception of things that are like notifications, subscriptions, if you, let's just set those aside, mutations that involve a user are quite small. Hmm. And, they, and they don't actually generally have to be, you don't care where they happen. You can just give them, a, in some sense, a top-level name. So there's, a, there's an asymmetry here. Like you, you have this big query so you can render everything for the, for the, for the user, but when the user clicks on a button, you're like, oh, they click this button and we want to change their, 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 their email. Mutations tend to be very simple and they're not generally involved in some complicated tree. And so Omnext just sort of accepts this asymmetry. Uh, so what happens is that you know, we have these big fat queries where we go get a bunch of data so we can show you the UI. Uh, but when you click a button, we have this separate concept which is called a mutation. Uh, so mutations look different. I mean, they, they are they are a type of expression in the query, but they're always top level. Mutations always happen at the top level. So you can imagine a query that's very deep that needs to render something, but mutations always happen at the top level. And you know, of course, it's important to say things like, you know, mutations need to happen in a certain order, and so you can have your mutations in a certain order. Uh, and, and the thing is that with mutations, you don't know what's going to happen. Right? That's the whole problem with mutations and side effects. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Right? Fire missiles. That could happen. And so you don't actually know when you run an arbitrary mutation what effect, what, system, what parts of your UI will be affected by this thing. Uh, you know, people always talk about REST and idempotent and sort of operations, and, uh, operations that are not idempotent, right? If, I, if I'm setting a, a, a value, like uh, some value, over and over again, if I, say, if I set it to the same value n times, it's, it's the same as if I set it one time. That's easy to reason about, right? But not all our most interesting operations aren't like this. Uh, mutations are not like this. For example, in Facebook, if I add somebody as a friend, that's not, that's not a simple thing, right? You actually will need to add, add that person to my friend list and then add that person to the other person's friends, li friends list, right? Many, many things in your system can change. And a lot of, again, the most interesting mutations have this property. And so the way that Omnext works, you know, mutations happen at the top level. We assume that anybody could fire missiles. They could fire five different kinds of missiles. Uh, and so what we do is we say we don't know what's happened, but the person that wrote the back end can say, well, you may care about this. I wrote the back end, so I know which missiles got fired. And then the front end can choose which of those things they want to reread. So you run a mutation. The back end will do it on your behalf, and it will say, these are the things that you may want to reread to get their updated value. And clients can choose to reread the parts they care about. A lot of people get confused by this, and this is, a, this is something that's not uh, my idea. Both Relay and Falcor have this property. And you're like, well, why wouldn't you always want to reread these things that the server says changed? And that's just not true because you wrote a backend, and that backend, for example, may say, I've rendered this, this, whole, this whole view, a uh, list of things is now different. But if I'm on my, if I'm my, on my phone um, and not on a desktop client where I can show 10 lists and I'm on my phone and I can only see one list, 
I may not care that three other lists change. I only care that the list that the user can actually see on their, on their screen changed. Uh, and so both Relay and Falcor adopt this pattern because there are many different types of clients and some clients cannot show all the change that a, that a mutation may have on the system. Hmm. You just can't present that much information. And to me, this is awesome. Uh, a lot of people, I think, will understand this as they build Omnex systems or take the time to actually understand Relay and Falcor um, because there's another thing going on which I do not like. And I don't, I don't normally call out ideas as being like, I think that's a terrible idea. Uh, recently, there has been a talk. There's this notion of FFB. It's like front end for back end, where companies are actually writing an entirely uh, different, oh, sorry, back ends for front ends, BFF, um, where they write a, an entirely separate back end for every single UI client. They, sort of they do this. Copy they and do this. copy and modify uh, in in the large. Well, it's and it's because and the reason they're doing this is because they have not, in my opinion, they haven't assessed relay or the Falcor approach, which is that we want one system to be able to serve uh, many different clients, and you have to make some radical changes if you really want that to work. Uh, so this mutation story, which again is, is sort of non-obvious, is a part of of the fact that different clients. Uh, will want to reread different things after a mutation. Hadn't heard of that. Around here, uh, I have two young daughters, and uh, around here, BFF means something else entirely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'll have to keep my eye out for that and, and, uh, and uh, you know, raise a yellow flag if I see it coming up. Yeah, yeah. Actually, actually it was, it was, I, Martin Fowler talked about it. So you may have, you may have to um, gather some fuel for the fire if, if somebody thinks this is like the right way to do it. I, I think it's not the right way. So he was in favor? No, no, he wasn't in favor, but okay. he linked to it. I gotcha. Okay. I was going to say, I don't think I want to get between David Nolan and Martin Fowler. My, my, my brain's not big enough for that. But uh, <laughs> So you mentioned something else that you brought up during your, that I was really happy to see you bring up during your Conj talk, and you touched on it briefly here in a moment ago, which was um, kind of the role of rest. Um, it's been a dominant metaphor for those of us uh, occupying the certainly the back end and I think largely the front end world of, of web applications for a long time now, and um, I've been of the opinion, long been of the opinion that it its its usefulness as a metaphor is quite limited, and I, I think you made that case more elegantly than I could. Have. I wonder if you could touch on that a little bit. Well, so I actually think you know it's it's one of these things where I really think that with technology, people often um, will just throw out the baby with the bathwater. I talked about this, uh, I think, in my datomic sort of ohm next light uh, talk, which is that REST obviously has thought deeply about the problem. You know, you want to talk about how does how is state communicated between uh, two systems, and you know that's what you know that's what REST really stands for. And, you know, they've, they've thought through, you know, problems like what are the semantics of these operations and so on and so forth. Uh, and actually, if you think about when it came out, what it came out of, you know, as a response to SOAP and how the web was going, which was pre, this was before, this was before JavaScript was really like considered a, an essential part of, of, of clients. It made sense. It made sense for, for, for web pages, right? You're, you're presenting documents and different types of documents and, um, the model gives a lot of structure to applications that I think is really necessary. But I think what happened as clients became more rich and more sophisticated and more dynamic, um, and you weren't constrained to full page reloads, 
the, the metaphor, uh, the, the sort of the structure that it gave was not quite good enough uh, because w what happens, I think, was that, okay, we're building a backend for uh, only desktop web browsers. And that's a simple world. And now we're in a world where you build a backend and you know, you're probably building it for a desktop client, probably uh, a web-based mobile client. Maybe you decide, oh, we need to build an Android client and it's going to be native. Then we need to build an iOS client and that needs to be native. And then suddenly, um, the fact that each one of these clients have different display capabilities, different sort of feature sets which may influence what information they need, um, suddenly the client is restricted by whatever hard-coded sort of notion you have of resources and what the rate-related resources are. You know, in a world where latency wasn't a problem, this wouldn't be a big deal. You could just grab a resource and then just keep going back for more. But as you know, everybody knows, it just really depends. How good is your, how good is your mo mobile network connection? Uh, and these, these refetches are extremely costly. And so, so again, this is the, the Relay and Falcor idea is, and the old next idea is, you, you want to reduce latency. You want to reduce network communication. It's better if you can just get everything you want in one round trip. You, don't, you shouldn't have to go back for more. Um, and really the only way to pursue that is to basically give of the back end, a sort of a, sh a skeleton of a structure that you want. And then the, the server provides that. There is no hard-coded, this is the only thing I can, I'm going to give you. Uh, the client has more control. The client gets to say, this is the shape of the thing I want. Just give me this thing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, I totally agree with you. And I, I think I may have slightly misattributed. I know that Bobby Calderwood also spoke um, at the Conj uh, about REST, and I may have inadvertently as, uh, ascribed some of his analysis to you. Um, but you both you both did touch on it, and uh, it's, it's, it's good stuff. I think, uh, like you say, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Be sure you know what you're getting. Uh, but it's, uh, it's just so dominant that I think it's important to make people revisit that these days, especially in light of the, the stuff you've been talking about. So, you know, this is really cool stuff, and I, I'm, I'm pretty thrilled about ohm.next, even though I'm not um, an active client programmer. I will say I have done enough. Like, I, I actually made a tiny little program. That you actually helped me with a little bit, and I did it in a straight closure script, and it got to a fairly – it was doing something useful, but it was still really small. And I crossed this line where I was like, oh, my, oh my gosh, I totally see why I need this stuff. Right, because even though the program was still small and I was using a powerful language to express it in, I rapidly got to the point where I was like, I need to have a better approach to managing this stuff, and it made me wonder how people have been doing it for years. And the thi and that experience was just really kind of, um, I don't know, it was really enlightening for me to see how rapidly you can get to a, a place where you need something like what uh, these various frameworks to include OM and OM.next uh, provide. So it's just really cool to me to see people advancing that, um, especially because I might need it someday <laughs> in a yeah. big way. Yeah, and I, often people say, like, you know, you know, if, you know, people will often say with, with like, any of these things, why do you need this thing? I, I'm, I'm like, I, I can't prove that you need it, right? So I always say, try it without it yeah. and see how, much, see how much work you have to do, see, much, see how much discipline you have to have, see how much structure you have to invent. And then maybe you'll, you'll come to appreciate what philosophies these systems embody. And I think in Clojure, you often have, I think, I would say if there's a problem, you know, if you identify a problem, I actually think that like, you know, uh, people immediately say, you know, I think there's a, sometimes a knee-jerk response that frameworks are bad. And, and I think what people are trying to say uh, is that they, 
they, what they really mean is that they don't like systems that are not modular. And I think people have a bad experience with things that have the label framework, and that thing actually isn't modular. You can't actually customize it. Uh, there's too much magic, and it just doesn't solve the problem that you had that you actually have. But it, it's again, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, take the time to understand. You may encounter a thing. It's like, oh, this tries to create structure around something. I guarantee you will, if you don't use this thing, you'll have to roll your own solution. And it's going to be ad hoc. And, and likely, you'll, you'll just make all the mistakes and then have to backtrack and resolve um, the problems that these other systems uh, you know, solve for you and put into production, like Falcor. If I was doing JavaScript uh, and I was doing um, a UI, I'd probably be like, yes, React plus Falcor. Let's just do that. That just, that just, there's now 10 things we don't have to think about that we can focus on our, our actual problem domain. But yeah, and you know, this, realizing that sometimes uh, things, have, <laughs> things guide you to a structure and that uh, there's a, there is a real important purpose there and you're not necessarily sacrificing uh, modularity or extensibility. Yeah, absolutely. I can't improve on that. Uh, so I, I, we are starting to uh, get to the point we should maybe think about wrapping up in a little while. But before we do that, I knew we were going to talk about ohm.next, but I actually kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about your work at Cognitech because I think people know you from one of various ways. They might be familiar with you from your work on ClojureScript, uh, your work on Ohm. Um, but like I said, you also work on the product team. <sighs> How do you how do you do all that? Like, how do you fit? You know, does does Cognitech say, "Hey, man, go work on ClojureScript now"? Or how, how do you how do you get all this done? Like, what's your what's your life like as a as a programmer? Uh, so you know, uh, I, I work on you know I work on Datomic, um, and that does keep me pretty busy. But you know, when I when I when when I decided to join up join forces with Cognitech, which I was very excited about, you know, I, I at that time I was mostly most of my Clojure activity was open source. And specifically, a lot of my time was doing open source Clojure script work. Uh, you know, I basically said, if I'm going to come join forces with this amazing thing that's called Cognitech, I do want to be able to spend uh, quite a bit of time continuing to contribute to Clojure script. And I think it, it's generally, I think, the case that people throughout Cognitech understand that I do a lot of work there and everybody benefits from it. So, you know, I think for the most part, I'm allowed to uh, contribute to Clojure script when I see fit. And at the same time, you know, things have changed dramatically um, in the past year. Uh, I mean, it was quite palpable at the conj just how pervasive ClojureScript usage is now and how, how happy people are with the experience. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't rough corners. There's plenty of things to work on. There are plenty of rough corners. But it's gotten to the point where people no longer think it's um, some weird thing. Uh, it's now very essential and I would say sort of loved part of people's stack. Uh, but this, because of this, because there's so much enthusiasm, enthusiasm about it, there's so much contribution now. Um, in the past year, uh, mostly what I do is go through Jira, I look at patches, um, I give feedback, and I apply patches. I mean, granted, there's, there have been some big projects that I worked on, but there, there are now a steady stream of enhancements um, that other people take on on their own. And it's great. Uh, it means that I I can you know uh, put my attention elsewhere, and that um, ClojureScript is uh, you know increasingly in the hands of the community, and, and that's really awesome. As far as the Ohm Next thing, the Ohm Next thing is definitely you know it's not you know it's not it's really it's really you know sort of my own project. But one one thing you know the reason I spend so much of my I would say free time on Ohm Next is that 
Um, you know, I, I've come to really love the Clojure stack, Clojure, Clojure script, and I think Datomic is really fantastic. Uh, and I think a lot of people, for various reasons, they might not consider it, and they might not know what value it, it really brings to the table. For something, I mean, you, th you think database, and you're like, what does a database have to do with building UIs? Um, and then once I sort of came to my own understanding of, of Datomic, and then I sort of saw the Relay and Falcor stuff happening, I was like, oh my gosh, the Datomic model is incredible for UIs. It's, it's one of the best models I've ever seen. Um, you, you really have all the, all, the, all the power that you want, but you're not, you're not trapped in this, like, you know, again, like, oh, next, okay, there's no, there's no rest here. You don't have you know, the, the ORM thing. It really is this beautiful, no event models. Uh, for me, it's like I can do all the things that I did before. It's simpler, it's cleaner, it's easier to reason about, and all these things fit together. Uh, and so for me, uh, Ohm Next was very much a, sort of a celebration of all these things that are in place now uh, that you can combine. And when you combine them, they're far greater than the sum of the parts. Do you think you would have come to the same realization if you hadn't spent the last however long you've been with us now, a um, year and a half, I think, working on Datomic? Was it that level of immersion that enabled you to see that? Uh, def definitely, definitely. Uh, understanding Datomic was uh, a huge, huge influence. At the same time, it was also, you know, this is definitely a synergistic thing. I, I would say it was definitely seeing the Falcor and Relay thing that I got Datomic. I totally got it. Uh, but I didn't see the UI connection. Uh, and in fact, uh, it was funny. It was actually Rich who noticed that this, this thing could be done because I went to React conference, uh, the, the first React.js conference, and that's when they announced Relay, and I was skeptical. And then I watched the talk, and I was like, wow, this is awesome. And then actually Rich, you know, you know Rich is, is very prolific. It seems, it seems he watches and reads everything. Mm -hmm. And he watched the Relay talk, and he was like, this is really cool. This seems like a good fit. Uh, for Datomic. And then I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's, totally, that's totally true. Uh, and Omnext was sort of like, you know, running with that uh, inspiration. Well, David, you're always so busy. I can see that we're <laughs> going to have to have you back on yet, yet again. Uh, but before we wrap up, however, um, I do always like to leave time at the end of the show for our guests to talk about anything that I forgot to ask them about that they, they would like to bring up. So I don't know if you have anything in mind, but if you do, it'd be lovely to hear uh, anything that you think is going on right now that's really cool that you're working on or that you're aware of or just that like our podcast audience should uh, should hear about um i can't uh nothing else i think nothing else comes to mind i, I you know i've been so heads down on a lot of the things that I've, we talked about uh during uh this podcast uh so yeah nothing nothing new new or interesting in, in the horizon i mean you know, as far as like, uh, you know, the thing that I'm most excited about now is like the con. I mean, I, I think Stu maybe talked about this a little bit, but like the conj is a really, it's a really great thing. And you just see the enthusiasm for the technologies and the, the various awesome projects that the community is building. And that, that for me is the biggest source of inspiration, really. I think the, uh, just the community is going in a super positive direction. Uh, and that's great. It makes, it makes all this uh, a lot more fun. And a lot less lonely. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I'm glad to hear it. I, we all want you to stay happy, David, because a lot of the things that, you know, we've talked before on the show about how, uh, you know, we've got a lot of technologies that we like and that they all play together nicely. And I think ClojureScript is definitely part of that landscape. I would argue that Omnext is also, or Ohm and Omnext, that whole family of technologies is also an important uh, part of the landscape because I think uh, personally that uh, there's really 
no other set of technologies that I'm aware of, and I could be missing something, that has as good a story for single-page applications as the set of stuff we like, right? Something like Ohm or Omnext, Closure Script specifically, Transit, Closure on the back end, Datomic. These set of things come together to make a story for single-page applications that I think is unrivaled by any other technology stack. Now, obviously, that's a matter of my opinion, but I think it's a pretty solid one. I, I suspect you'd agree. Of course, we're biased. But, uh, <laughs> so to see, you, to see that you're able to keep working on those things and are still inspired to keep working on those things, I think, is, is awesome because I don't think anybody that's paying attention could argue that single-page applications are getting less important with every passing month. <laughs> I think that's definitely not the case. So. Yeah. Awesome. So anyway, keep up the good work, I guess, is my long-winded way of saying that. But uh, but here we are. We've come to the end of a, a show. We will definitely have you back. It's always awesome to talk to you, whether on the air or off. But before we go, we do have a final question to ask you, uh, which I did not forewarn you about, uh, but uh, hopefully it won't be any problem for you to field. That question is, we always ask our guests for a piece of advice they would like to share with our listeners. Now, that could be advice that they've received or advice they like to give, or just, you know, advice in general that they think is a good idea. So uh, do you have any uh, any advice to share with us, David? Advice? Uh, I don't know. Just just keep it simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's great. That's simple advice, uh, and yet no less powerful for being so. And I think if people go back and listen to the show, they could easily pick out another uh, 20 or 30 bits of advice. We had a whole bunch of philosophical discussions, but I like that. That's a great way to end it. So... Um, but we're not going to end it exactly there because I do have to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come on and talk to me and to our listeners. So I really appreciate it. It's been, it's been great to talk, to talk to you. So thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. We certainly did. Uh, but we will close it there. Have you back some other time. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to The Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech, Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to The Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art and show notes at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact us by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest today was David Nolan on Twitter at Swanodet. S-W-A-N-N-O-D-E-T-T-E. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.